This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth. So it's a day after the spring statement has been released by Rishi Sunak and it looks like, well, it may have had a tough landing. Here are a selection of some of the front pages. The Guardian says cost of living surges and Sunak squeezes poorest. The Daily Express says the forgotten millions say what about us? And the Telegraph calls it the biggest fall in living standards on record. Now, James, is this the kind of landing that Rishi Sunak would have voted for? I don't, I don't think it's what, you know, these are not the front pages that the, the Treasury would have been dreaming of. But I think there is a certain inevitability that when you have the Office of Budget Responsibility concluding that this is the biggest fall to living standards on record and you've got inflation heading to a 40-year high, politics is going to get very scratchy. And I think if you think about this, right, governments normally have, you know, four ways of uh, funding things. One is to borrow more. And until relatively recently, borrowing more looked like the kind of simplest solution to almost every problem. You know, there was a sense that interest rates were low and lots of people believed that they were structurally low, but they they weren't ever going to go up. And the inflation, you know, you the, the years of QE after the financial crisis didn't appear to have prompted the spike in inflation that many people predicted, created a real confidence that, you know, that, that, that again, we were in a kind of structural era of low inflation. And that has changed. And, you know, the, the, the government is going to spend 80 or billion on servicing the debt going into 2023 that's four times what it was spent this year and you know the, the rate at which it is rising is alarming and it's also now you know even in government terms there is money as, as, as Kate Andrews pointing out at our Coffeehouse Live event last night you know that's more than the defence budget at a time you know when uh, there are kind of clear threats to, to, to UK security so I think in some ways this is a sign that politics is entering into a very difficult scratchy period and it's just worth remembering you know, Politicians used to be terrified of inflation. It used to be, you know, when Norman once, once, um, rather unfortunately, said that you know that unemployment was a price worth paying to keep inflation down. You know, yes, you know, that I think mean, was testament to how scared politicians were of it. And because we haven't had any experience of inflation being a serious problem in, in recent years, you know, I think we are now beginning to realise why previous generations of British politicians were so terrified of, of inflation. Why Margaret Thatcher kind of dedicated the economic policy of her. Pre- to, to trying to slay the inflationary dragon. Well, James, that all makes sense, but it hasn't stopped Labour, for example, criticising uh, the government or, or you know, non-politicians like Martin Lewis saying that you know, the government hasn't gone far enough. And I think, is it fair to say that some Conservative MPs are also worried about what the fallout from this will be in yeah. the medium term? So you have kind of Peter Aldous, independent-minded Tory MP, saying that he worried that not enough was being done for people on benefits. I think the government has a problem, which is, you know, very recently spent £9 billion pounds to help people with the increase in the energy price cap that is coming in April. Even if the government will not say so explicitly, it, it to my mind, is, it is quite clear that if the energy price cap goes up in October by anything like what it went up by in April, there will have to be another package of support. And I think the government is reluctant to say what that is at the moment right. because the energy price cap is, is jumping around in terms of where it might go. The economist Simon French pointed out that you know the other day 
the numbers in the market for gas futures suggest the energy price cap be going up by about 15%. Now, that's very different from what it appeared uh, um, uh, earlier during the Russian invasion, straight after Russia invaded Ukraine, when, when at one point, one day's market prices suggested a price cap of over four thousand pounds. So, I think I think that you, know, I think it, and that is the disconnect in some ways. I think the the challenge, the biggest political challenge, is going to be, but you know, can if inflation is going to be so much higher than previously expected, can you kind of wait to uprate benefits in line with inflation, you know, and do that under the normal process rather than having to do something more rapidly? And do you think that's on the cards? I'm not saying it's on the cards. I think that, that is where the political pressure is clearly right, going to grow. Um, I, because, because I think in part, because I, I think that that, that that you can hear it, you could hear it in the budget statement and the media rounds he's done since. You know, Rishi Sunak has an argument about people who are in work about what he's done for them. You know, he's cut the taper rate in universal credit. He's raised the national insurance threshold. Where things become more difficult for him is about people who aren't in work or people who can't work because yeah. they're caring for a relative or, or the like. Yeah. And meanwhile, on the continent, uh, President Biden today has arrived in Brussels for a NATO summit. James, what will they be discussing? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it is a remarkable thing, which is if you think back to Emmanuel Macron calling NATO brain dead, uh, this alliance you know, seemed to be withering on the vine. There was a tension. Mm. The NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, the British, uh, wanted NATO to focus a bit more on China, arguing that that was necessary, essentially, you know, not implicitly, not explicitly, to keep the Americans interested. But now that Russia has invaded Ukraine, NATO has been revived. It is now quite clear to European countries what the benefits of the NATO alliance are. Uh, I think some of the tensions between the US and its NATO allies are easing because European countries are going to increase their defence spending. Um, look at Germany saying it's going to go to 2%, for example, you know, and I think other countries will follow. You know, that does mean that all of the big three in Europe, France, Germany and the UK, are all spending over 2% on defense will all be spending over two percent on defense by 2024 and i think you know you, that makes it easier to pressure laggards like italy to, to spend more you've got poland talking about 2.5 several of the um baltic states also talking about going beyond two romania talking about going beyond two you know big up a common geographical theme in who they're close to here you know but so i, I think that tension is i thought it was quite interesting that president Biden said look i am going to ask you to spend more but i'm not going to do so in the manner of my predecessor he didn't treat you guys very well one of the things that you could say is hopeful about the future of a transatlantic relationship is that a lot of the, the, the US sense was, was, and a lot of what Trump was tapping into was the sense they were being taken to marks, that Europe was becoming a less important theatre for the US, and yet the US was still the country that was spending the money to defend Europe. Why, why were these rich European countries not paying for it themselves? Well, they increasingly are. Mm. I also think that China's equivocation on Russia's invasion of Ukraine is also making it easier for the US to say to Europeans, look, you know, Russia and China are part of a similar threat mm. to the rules-based international order, which you know suits both the US and the European members of NATO very well, which has helped make them prosperous and rich and stable. And so you 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 should kind of you know therefore you are seeing a greater alignment of views. Now, again, 
there's a big question about how long this lasts because yeah. uh, the the break in Germany's economic relationship with Russia, you can argue, makes the Chinese relationship more important for Germany. But I definitely think you are going to see the US continue to try and drive that wedge to uh, to argue that. And I also think you see from the fact there's also been a G7 meeting in Brussels today with uh, with the Japanese president, obviously, uh, as another example of how the US is trying to use this crisis to kind of broaden out the Western alliance, to bring in the US's Asian allies and European allies and get them working in concert. Mm. And I think it was quite telling that the, the implicit sanctions threat that was in the G7 communique, the sanctions threat was to any country that tried to backfill what Russia needs militarily. We all know who Russia is asking to backfill mm. some of its military needs. So, so I think we will see more of this. I think, obviously, again, there is a kind of big question of what happens in Ukraine. It does not appear at the moment that the Russian forces are advancing. I think NATO is becoming more emboldened about the weaponry it is sending. I still think things like a no-fly zone or offensive weapons are off the table. But I think you will see, you know, some more advanced weaponry. You know, the US have already committed sending the switchblade um, drones there. I think you'll see more, you know, you know, defensive air systems and the like going in. And I think the kind of big question now becomes, you know. How long is this war in the Ukraine going to last? Are we in for you know, a prolonged period? There's reports that the Russians' uh, troops outside Kiev are trying to dig into positions rather than trying to advance. They're trying to hold ground rather than, rather than move forward. I think the Chinese angle in all of this is fascinating, as you say, because it does seem like it's hard to see where the win-win situation is for the Chinese, and they always love a win-win situation, because, as you say, if they don't do anything, the Americans can use this as an argument to reduce dependence on China. But if they do do something, it's not like the West is going to thank them for it, and tensions are still going to exist. See Anthony Blinken's comments that China's already on the wrong side of history about this. does feel like presidency has a you know very narrow road that he can come out to it's more loss minimum than anything else I think there is a, I think there, I think there, there is a road in some ways for Xi which you could mm. see which he which if he was wishing to drive a wedge but I think his problem might be that, that Vladimir Putin isn't interested in doing that I think if Xi had come out earlier on in the conflict you know arguing for a negotiated settlement mm. and kind of minimizing Russian demands in such a way that you might have been able to drive a wedge between France and Germany and the mm. US and the UK but I think that window might have been missed it, it, yeah. it, 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 it is more difficult now. I also think that China has suffered from this conflict in a different way. And and one can't be certain that this will happen because companies often talk a very good game about things that they're going to do. But I think that you are seeing a shift towards what Adrian Waldridge calls just-in-case management. And I think one of the things that that means is I think lots of CEOs are looking at these sanctions that have been imposed on Russia and thinking, well, you know, everyone can tell that this is clearly a, a kind of the US is clearly trying to develop a playbook for sanctions that you could impose on a country that that, that, that committed a, a you know, hostile military action, tried to redraw the world map by force. Obviously, China and Taiwan mm-hmm. spring to mind. And, you know, what would happen to their supply chains and their ability to operate their business if China was served with these kind of G7 led sanctions? And I wonder whether you know, you could argue that that could have its own negative effect on China and its economy, especially when you combine that with the COVID shutdowns that you're seeing, the disruption yeah. to supply chains being caused by the by the you know as you, as you call it, you know, G's frozen China policy yeah. that you wrote about um, yeah. in the Spectator recently. Absolutely, and I think you know I think we can see the Chinese already softening up on the economy because last week they announced that they would they're tra- committed to more trans.
transparent regulation on the stock market, which had a positive impact after that announcement was made. And whereas last year it was very much gung ho, you know, we're going to clamp down on these tech companies without any notice. And I think it's interesting that the Chinese are recalibrating on that front and if I can make give a plug to my own podcast Chinese Whispers um, on Monday I released an episode talking about the Taiwanese view on all of this on, on the Ukraine situation and using that as a way of explaining Taiwanese politics and the main dimensions there more generally so you can search for Chinese Whispers on that one and thank you everyone thank you James for talking to me today and thank you everyone to coming to last night's event it was a pleasure to see you all and we hope to do more of these in the future thanks for listening <laughs>